0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, March 10th, we're studying Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. When Pharisees and scribes begin to grumble about Jesus due to his dinner company, Jesus tells a string of three parables about the lost being found. Today's text includes the first two of those parables. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Good morning, Pastor Apple. It's great to get to be with you today.
0: As we get started this morning, Pastor Ill, let's talk a little context. What should we know about where St. Luke has been leading us, leading into chapter 15?
1: Well, St. Luke has been doing um, all kinds of things as Jesus is in the middle of doing a lot of parable teaching, uh, and he picks that up in Luke 14 especially. Uh, It all starts when uh, Jesus was invited to a Sabbath meal at the house of one of the uh, rulers or one of the head Pharisees, and they were watching him carefully like it was a setup. Um, And that man had dropsy, uh, or an accumulation of fluid and they wanted to know would jesus heal this man even though it was the sabbath day and so they had this whole set up ready to go and jesus responds first with a parable talking about uh taking uh, rescuing say a son or an ox that fell into a pit on the sabbath and then he went on to give them several parables about the About feasts and taking important places. And so in all of this, Jesus was kind of poking the Pharisees, uh, showing them, I will give you pointed parables about the things that uh, the things that you're struggling with and the things that aren't going well for you. And Jesus has absolutely no problem. He even turns to the man who invited him and told him that when he throws a dinner or a banquet, uh, don't invite your rich friends or your neighbors, because then they'll just invite you back. You'll be trading dinner invitations. Instead, invite the crippled and the poor and the lame. Uh, and that uh, didn't go over real well. Uh, and then Jesus, after the meal, begins to speak with the crowds, and uh, he said to talked with them about the cost of discipleship, that it takes um, intensity and tenacity to follow Jesus. Uh, He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus pulls no punches about the challenge of faith and faithfulness. And uh, for many of the people, they were, uh, well, alarmed by this. And it stands to reason that Jesus' number of disciples Dropped a little bit as he warned them about the difficulty of following him. Uh, And that brings us into chapter 15. And St. Luke sets the context for us in chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, And he says, Now all the sinners, sorry, all the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so you already have Jesus who's been poking the Pharisees and saying, I know what you're thinking and I know what you think you're going to get out of this. Uh, at this point, the Pharisees are pretty much going to disagree with anything that Jesus says or does. And sure enough, they see the people that Jesus welcomes as uh his learners, and his disciples, and his hearers, and even that Jesus would eat with them, and they were offended. And Jesus has more pointed parables, not just about their conduct, but now, uh, and this is where Luke 15 is a little different than the parables in Luke 14. Luke 14 were parables against the Pharisees. In Luke 15, these three parables are parables that are for God. And they speak the truth of God's mercy and the truth of God's intervention for people. Uh, So no longer is Jesus attacking the Pharisees, but he says, you guys want to see faithfulness? Let me show you the faithfulness of God.
0: So, Pastor Ill, let, let's talk a little more about some of the context there in Luke 14, particularly of this matter of of eating. You know, you, you said that Jesus has been telling parables while he was eating on a variety of case, occasions there in 14. And, and even some of those parables that deal with the matter of eating. In chapter 15, it is the people Jesus is eating with that caused the Pharisees to stumble, which we've seen them have this problem with Jesus before. But what is the significance of of eating And who you eat with, and why is that part of the Pharisees' problem with Jesus?
1: So in the first century, um, especially in the first century in the Holy Land, who you ate with was a a statement that you are united with this person. You didn't eat with just anybody. The idea that you might uh, go to a restaurant, and if somebody else maybe didn't have enough room, they would ask if they could borrow the end of your table. Um, That would be not done. In the first century, mm. there was a, an intimacy and a level of agreement and a fellowship saying that you stood by this person, you stood with this person, and you were even willing to eat with them. It had a sense of intimacy and conformity that you and the person you were with uh, were joined together. And that would not be the case um, between the Pharisees, say, and these sinners. Uh For the Pharisees, if they were to eat with these very public tax collectors and these very public sinners, they would say, you're going to pull us down to your level. People won't respect us or appreciate us. Um, You you maintained your credibility by eating with credible people. If you start eating with uncredible people or people that can't be trusted, like tax collectors, then... your social standing will certainly begin to go down very fast. You rise by who you eat with and you go down by who you eat with. Um, and their goal was always to uh, keep climbing that social ladder. And that included with who they ate with and who they didn't eat with.
0: So when Jesus eats with the tax collectors, the sinners, as they I'm putting air quotes around the word sinners, Pastor L when when he eats with them that is then Jesus losing credibility in the sight of the Pharisees that's why they question that this guy really isn't all that he says he is
1: right it's it's shameful that he would do such a thing and in the parables that we're going to talk about today that idea of of the way that God's mercy is is a little bit embarrassing or is kind of sort of shameful uh, is going to come out and be an important part of, of these first two parables about the lost sheep and the lost coin uh, because of the way that God acts, um, and that's going to, to really shape these parables and how we understand them and what they mean for us today.
0: Mm. Uh, one more matter of context, then, and it is it is related to the thought of who Jesus eats with. You know, he in this chapter, chapter fifteen, he eats with the tax collectors and the sinners, and that's what causes the Pharisee problems. But in chapter fourteen, and on other occasions in the gospel, he. Eats with the Pharisees. He he is so thinking from Jesus' perspective now, he is willing to eat with the Pharisees, which I, I think if, if we're going to stick with that same line of you know who you're willing to eat with says something about the company that you keep and, and what you're trying to you know, who you're trying to call to yourself, as Jesus will say in these parables, I think that helps to color the parables in, in chapter 14 and in 15 as well, and I think particularly in 15, as not just Jesus poking the Pharisees. I mean, I think that's, that's the way you phrase. it. I think he is, right? I mean, he's, he's certainly directing events so that when the time comes, he will die as is needed for the salvation of the world. But I think there is, the fact that Jesus tells these parables at a time when he has been eating with Pharisees and now he's still in the context of eating and he's telling them to the Pharisees, I think there's not only a, a poking of the Pharisees, but also a, a calling of the Pharisees and I think that's really going to come in in the, in the parable that you don't get to talk about in Luke 15. Right. Real. It really comes through. But I, I think that's something that's that's evident, too. It's not just Jesus poking the Pharisees, but he wants them to, to be the ones that he eats with and to call them into the same grace that is being received by the tax collectors and the sinners.
1: Right. I think that is certainly going on. Uh, in, the, in light of talking about these first two parables, uh, the idea that there is just conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees uh, is enough. Uh, and Jesus is going to talk about God's grace in a way that um, a faithful Pharisee probably wouldn't be terribly proud of. Uh, A faithful Pharisee would say, no, God wouldn't ever do anything to embarrass himself or that might bring shame to him. God is never going to allow himself to look... to look kind of silly or to look like he made a mistake. Um, And so the Pharisees would want to very quickly talk about making sure that they not dishonor God or that they wouldn't uh, set up a situation where God would look bad. Hmm. Uh, But the truth is God doesn't care. God is willing to look bad. uh, And God is willing to do something that might look slightly embarrassing. If it means that he gets to restore a sinner to the kingdom of God. Um, Hmm. Something you did say before, though, Pastor Apple, I think is really helpful to point out. Uh, It talks in Luke 15, verse 1, about the tax collectors and the sinners. And you mentioned you wanted to put air quotes around that. And that might not be a bad move, actually, because some of these, these aren't just uh, people who sin every day. Sometimes when I teach this in Bible class, somebody will say, but we're all sinners. And the correct answer is, yes, yes, you're right. But these sinners, along with the tax collectors, were public sinners. Everybody knew that these people were sinners, and so trying to come up with um, examples today would be those people that you know are um, are continually guilty of tax fraud and extortion, or those people who are uh, who have their their very life and everything about it is criminal. Uh, maybe like in something like organized crime, where you can say the very basis that these people get out of bed in the morning to do is is sinful everything about them is identified with their sinfulness. Um, And that's not quite true of, of just everyone who, who is at the same time, a saint and a sinner uh, in the church, but rather these are, these are the people that are not socialized with that a good uh, Pharisee or a good, even a good Christian wouldn't normally think of being someone that you would want to spend any time with. And, uh, Jesus is clear. God's grace is for these people. Uh, You want to get all excited about God's grace for for you, the Pharisees and the, the righteous and the holy? Okay. But God's grace is especially for the broken, for the sinner, for the tax collector, for the one that everybody knows exactly how messed up their life is. And God's grace is for them. Does that look silly? Does that look foolish? Does it look like a waste? Maybe, but God doesn't care because that is why Jesus Christ has come into the flesh to save sinners, including tax collectors, not just the good sinners, but all the sinners.
0: That's right. And that's who Jesus is eating with here is all the sinners. So let's go ahead and read from Luke 15. We're reading the first 10 verses this morning. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, She calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That is our text for today. That's Luke 15, verses 1 to 10. Pastor Ill, again, we've talked about the context of these parables, the tax collectors and sinners drawing near to hear Jesus, the Pharisees grumbling because Jesus is eating with them. I want to go back a little bit, having read the text now, to something that you were saying about, again, about these sinners, the tax collectors and sinners, that Jesus is talking to them. He's eating with them. He's receiving them. And, and thinking about maybe a way that sometimes you'll hear this verse used in within American Christianity, does this mean that that Jesus, I'm going to throw some quotes around these words too, accepts them or tolerates them? What what does this mean in terms of the way Jesus thinks about, say, their lifestyle? Because I mean, as you said, some of these people are the, the type of people that are getting up every morning in order to engage in business that is inherently sinful. It goes against the Ten Commandments. So the fact that Jesus eats with them, knowing that the, the Pharisees are maybe misunderstanding what this means, What 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 does it mean? Does does it mean that he just, hey, that's great go ahead and do that? Or can you help me out there?
1: Well, I I think that to keep it, especially in the language of this first parable, if you have a runaway sheep, um, the shepherd is going to go grab that sheep. And the, shep- the shepherd is not content to say, oh, look, I found my sheep. It's down there playing uh, right in front of the wolf den. That's a great place for it. And so I'll just keep an eye from a distance and maybe I'll go back and forth and watch this sheep and watch my other sheep. Uh, no, the shepherd is not going to do that. He's going to see the dangerous situation that his sheep is in. He's going to grab his sheep, um, maybe toss it on his shoulders or carry it in his arms. Maybe... Uh, there's folklore that sometimes shepherds would even break the legs of wandering sheep so that they couldn't uh, wander off so quickly. Maybe he would even do something that drastic for a sheep and he would return it back to the flock and he would keep that sheep close to him so it didn't run away again. Uh, So Jesus comes for sinners, but he doesn't simply accept them where they are and leave them there. Jesus comes for tax collectors and sinners, and he comes for the public sinners in our day too, but he doesn't leave them there. He doesn't say, oh, your very way of being is contrary to my desire for you and is contrary to my law. That's okay. Not a big deal. No, he grabs a hold of them and he says, here, let me install you in my church. Let me continue to put my word near you, that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling and that you not do these things in order to uh, say, I can live however I want because Jesus, Jesus found me. When Jesus finds a sinner, he grabs hold of him and moves him to where Jesus wants him. Uh, even as Jesus keeps his promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. Um, Or like like God's promise to Joshua when he said, uh, I will be with you wherever you go. And so there is this promise that Jesus accepts sinners but he doesn't just accept them. He forgives them. He moves them. He makes them grow in faith and to grow in virtue and holiness. He sanctifies them or makes them holy and continues to make them more and more holy throughout their life the more they spend time with him. And so while it may be popular some to say that Jesus uh, accepts all sinners, well, well, it's true, but Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's okay that you're this kind of a sinner and I'm not going to change anything about that.
0: I suppose that that's where the, the context from the end of Luke 14 is helpful, where Jesus speaks about the cost of discipleship, what it means to follow him, that that to follow him means to carry a cross and come after Jesus. So, I mean, we want to, I guess, keep the, the idea of Jesus finding the lost sheep in the context of that. And I think both of those help to inform each other, you know, so on one hand, the the finding of the lost sheep means Jesus is calling you into this life of coming after him, carrying your cross and all that entails. And, and then the lost sheep helps to inform the end of Luke 14. I think you, you talked about the, the tenacity and the intensity that is required to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, I, I don't know if I can do that, Pastor Ill, well, here's some good news. Jesus is going to come find you lost sheep, and, and he's going to do that apart from your own reason or strength. So I think those, those two, really, they really, I mean, as, as you're talking here, I think those two start to, to go together and inform each other and help us to understand both of them better.
1: I, I think so too. And that emphasis that this is all God's work, to go from uh, the parables of Luke 14, where Jesus says, this is how you should treat others, not in pride, But in humility, this is why you should take the lowest seat at the table instead of the highest seat at the table. This is why you should not invite your rich friends and neighbors, but you should invite the crippled, the poor, the orphaned, and the lame. Uh, Those are all very, very direct statements about uh, how you should interact with the world. The Luke 15 parables are very direct about how God deals with the world. This is not uh, any kind of social advice. This is, hey, let me tell you about how it is that God comes to reconcile and be at peace with these tax collectors and these public sinners, how God will claim them as his own no matter what you Pharisees think about it.
0: So let's keep looking then at the parables itself. We've got two in our text today, the first being the matter of a lost sheep. And it's, it's a question. Jesus puts it into the Pharisees hands here, which he, he often does. He says, okay, you've got a problem with what's doing. Well, you answer me this question. And the, the question essentially is, Hey, which, which one of you, if you've got a hundred sheep, don't you go off and find that one sheep that's lost leaving the 99. So tell us about this question is, I mean, what's, what's the background is, what are the Pharisees going to answer to Jesus question? How did, do, how does this, how does he, Jesus set this up?
1: Well, and. And maybe it's helpful, too, just to talk a little bit about parables in general, and because a lot of times we use the definition that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Um, And that's an okay definition. I, I work with that. But I think we can nuance it a little bit and give it just a little bit more flavor. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning where at least one thing in this parable is bizarre and is not how the world really works. So when Jesus puts this question to the Pharisees and says, which one of you having 100 sheep is going to go look after the lost one, I would imagine there was probably a whole bunch of crickets. Um, The first century folklore tells us that in uh, for shepherds in difficult terrain surrounded by predators, if they couldn't find one of their sheep in three days, the sheep was considered uh, dead. Um, And that probably wasn't very unusual. You might even be able to think about the shepherds there at their shepherd union meeting saying, uh, yeah, those sheep sure do wander off sometimes. But, you know, you can't have a wool coat without some lambs wandering off. You have to count that as as market up to loss. Every once in a while you just get a wanderer. Oh, well, at least I still have those other 99. And, And I think that... We have a certain uh, aspect of this in our own way of saying, yeah, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And from time to time, you're just going to see that those people weren't really cut out for church life. And so those public sinners didn't really belong anyway. Oh, well. But God's not like that. The mercy and the grace of God is like a shepherd who chases down his wandering sheep and who isn't content to say, Oh, well, that person really wouldn't have been a good fit in my kingdom anyhow. No way! Instead, this shepherd goes out, he finds that sheep, leaving 99 in a level place, um, and goes on to talk about, I found the sheep, and then he, and that's when he does the really bizarre thing. He invites all the other shepherds to get together and have a party. Uh, Who does that? Uh, Pastor Apple, I don't know if you've ever lost anything. I lose lots of things. It's one of my gifts. It it happens Okay. Well, I'm I'm really good at losing things. Um, (laughs) And you know what I don't do when I lose something? Uh, I don't tell people about it. And when I find it, I play it off like it never happened. Oh, yeah. I knew that's where my keys were all along, right? oh yeah, no problem there. Whoops. Um, or or something like that. But this is not what the shepherd does. Instead, he, he sends out a memo. Hey, I lost my sheep, but I found my sheep. Um, I didn't mark it up as loss. And so let's all get together and have a party over this sheep that I found. Let me tell you about the fact that I found a missing sheep. Uh, to our human minds, this is embarrassing. Maybe shameful is a bit strong, but it's it's certainly not the way that most people usually act. Uh, Most people usually would be content to say, well, I lost one sheep, but I have 99 more, and you know how sheep are. I'll have a few more, you know, in time to come. But that's not not how God's grace and God's mercy works. It's also uh, the fact that God would say publicly, hey, this one that didn't look like he was a good fit this tax collector this public sinner yeah they're one of mine they belong to me they have a place in my kingdom and the pharisees are really uncomfortable with this because they want to keep a certain amount of purity in god's kingdom and among god's people and tax collectors and sinners really you shouldn't shouldn't have part of that they would think but god says i will come and snatch you like a shepherd Grabbing hold of an errant sheep, and I will haul you back to where you belong, not leaving you where you are, not saying that your public sinning is okay, but saying, No, repent, turn from that, and I have caught you and brought you into my kingdom. I have done it not because you thought it was a good idea, but because I did. And that is God's grace that goes out searching for his sheep and hauling them in before himself.
0: I really like the way that you said it about the the Lord is willing to claim these lost ones as his own and that that aspect of the the shame that God is willing to endure for our sakes I think is really what's what's in view here the the matter of you know the willingness to admit a lost sheep I think I want to I just want to be careful there so that we don't get the idea when we apply it that somehow our being lost was God's fault that we would right. that would be taking the parable too far. I get what you're saying that there is that that does add to the shame but I really think that the 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 shame here is that jesus is willing to to take these tax collectors and sinners and claim them as his own saying yes they have they belong to me i have come for them there's there's the shame that you really do see in this parable and i think we're, we're going to see more of that we do need to take a break though you're listening to sharper iron here on kfu we're talking the beginning of luke 15 with pastor peter ill we'll be right back please stick around Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, March 10th. We're studying Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10 with Pastor Peter Ill. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we were talking about the, some of the surprising features of this parable, particularly the one with the lost sheep and then the lost coin. I think we'll see some similarities. Before, before we go too far down there, one of the things that you said reminded me of a question that I like to consider when it comes to parables, but I forgot to ask you. You were talking about often in the parables. There's something unexpected that you you wouldn't think that would normally happen in the earthly story. S- sometimes when we assign a name to a parable, that highlights one particular aspect of the parable. And I think it's good that we have names for these things so we can know what we're talking about quickly. But sometimes I think those names may misdirect our attention. So in the ESV, these two parables are called the lost the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. What do you think of those names? Or is, there, is there another name that you might attach to these parables that might highlight a, something a little more significant than lost sheep, lost coin? What do you think?
1: Um, I think that – like I get where the titles lost sheep and lost coin come from. But really, the movement in the story and the importance of the story has very little to do with the sheep. Or the coin, as we'll see, but rather has everything to do with the shepherd. Uh, you might want to talk about the ridiculous shepherd or the uh, the selfless shepherd, if you were trying to go for a little bit of alliteration. Um, you could talk about uh, the uh, the partying housewife in the parable of. The what we think of as the parable of the lost coin, uh, because there she finds this coin and she throws a party. And I will talk more about that in, in a few minutes. I'm sure. Um, I have a, a pastor colleague uh, near me who, who talks about, uh, the third parable, the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son, uh, as the, uh, the partying papa. The parable of the partying <laughs> papa, which really has a has a very nice alliteration to it, getting all those P's in there. But it's each of these parables has more to do with the, with the actions of God and the actions of the finder. In this case, the shepherd or the woman who finds the coin or, or even the father in the last parable in the series than mm. it has to do with the sheep or the coin or the sons.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's helpful. And again, it, you know, we have these names and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with the names, but sometimes it is helpful to, to think about it with a different title to really catch the full flavor and to to notice maybe a little bit more where the emphasis lies. And, and clearly the emphasis is on the action of the shepherd, the action of the woman in these two parables we're talking about today. So with, with that in mind, Pastor that we're going to put the emphasis on the action of the shepherd. We'll stick with that parable in particular right now. How do we apply this parable? What does this parable mean for us as Christians?
1: So this parable talks about God's grace and God's mercy to all people, to public sinners and tax collectors, to people that you would think might not belong in the church. And has that kind of a focus, that this is... To say, God rejoices whenever anyone is counted in his kingdom, whenever he seizes them from the kingdom of death and darkness and condemnation, and places them in his kingdom of life, uh, and especially everlasting life, and in the kingdom of faith. And so there will be rejoicing in heaven when God rescues and snatches one of these public sinners out of their public sin and puts them in his kingdom. Uh, but I do think it's helpful to remember this is about God's work, and it's not necessarily about our human work. Sometimes we get, uh, with with really good intentions, we want to look at this and say, "Well, uh, this is really about what a pastor is supposed to do," and this is a uh, this parable is a pastor's marching orders. And to a point, that's right, but only to a point. Don't miss the fact this is about God's mercy and grace and about the work that God does through his gospel. How does God bring his gospel to sinful people? Well, through pastors who do things like teach and preach and baptize and bring communion um, and serve the Lord's Supper. But all of those things aren't the pastor's work. They are God's work. And so this is God's work for the sinners. This is God's work for those who would be cut off from him. And this is God's continual work done regularly, early, and often so that there would be rejoicing in heaven. And all of this rejoicing in heaven comes about because of God's holy, gracious will.
0: I think that is a helpful application and so that we don't carry it too far and make a a parable that is intended to teach us something about who God is into a parable that is primarily about teaching us who we should be and and I think the audience here is is worth keeping in mind Jesus is speaking these parables to the Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling about the people Jesus is eating with it's not he's not telling them this parable so that they would go out and and find these lost sinners themselves although i mean a couple steps down the road yes that that probably happens and it certainly does happen within the church that as those formerly lost sheep whom jesus has called into his flock and brought back into his flock we do begin to have that, you know, that that same desire to go out to seek after those who are who are lost and speak the word. All the while, as you said, recognizing it and belongs to them. But that's a couple steps down the road. First and foremost, this parable is about what Jesus is doing for that lost sheep, and then the joy that's evident there. And that's, I mean, and again, some of this is thinking forward to how Jesus really brings all this to a climax with the parable of the. Uh, what, the parting papa is what your your mm-hmm. colleague said with that parable and, and how you get the, the other side of, of the older son in that one. And that that's coming. You know, I mean, so yeah, we want to we want to be careful and make sure we keep the emphasis with this parable on the grace of God to find lost sinners, and that's all of us. And then the joy that that comes with that. And when we realize that we are the lost sheep whom the Lord has found and brought back into his fold completely by his grace. I mean, the joy is just, you know, you said, well, that sounds kind of ridiculous. You don't, you don't throw parties when you find your keys, but, but the joy over a sinner coming into the kingdom of heaven, you got to throw a party for that.
1: Absolutely. And that's absolutely what God does, rejoicing in heaven with the angels and the saints, because he has claimed another sinner as his own. Uh, But that's not how the world works. And when we read this parable, it's right for us to say, well, huh. That sure is bizarre, but that shows how much God's love and his mercy is over our common sense and our uh, rationalizations of things. Uh, It would be easy for God to say, oh, look, another sinner. Maybe this one will stick around. Maybe he won't. Oh, that one doesn't look like he belongs. Uh, I mean, our human judgments are sometimes pretty quick to that. Uh, Sometimes we get really cynical about You hear about uh, somebody joining a church or when you have a confirmation, uh, sometimes uh, Lutherans kind of have this down on their luck sense of humor that, oh, well, before too long, all these confirmands won't be coming back anymore. Um, And we kind of get kind of throw a little bit of a pity party about it. But not so for God. God has grabbed this person and given them faith. And when they give words to their faith, when they confess their faith, God rejoices because he has claimed a a sinner as his own. And that certainly does deserve a party. Um, It also deserves uh, continuing to party as that person continues in this faith that God has given. Uh, We don't turn our back on any of these people. But we continue to to cherish and celebrate all the good things that God has done through His work and through His Word that brings people into His kingdom.
0: So, I mean, the, in that way, this parable isn't just a a one time thing where where it's maybe say we could describe it in theological terms. It's not only talking about conversion when a, when a person is brought from no faith to faith in Christ, but there's there's a sense of joy that. Maybe if we can use Luther's language in the small catechism concerning baptism, that that daily contrition and repentance, every time that the Lord works that in us, there's opportunity for joy in the Lord because he's continuing to, to hold us and keep us in the faith.
1: Right. There's joy at conversion and there's joy at the preservation of faith, too.
0: Oh. So I mean, and does that does that color? Because this is sometimes a question that I know I've I've been asked. Does that color the the thing that Jesus says about you know there's more joy in heaven over this one sinner who repents than over the ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance? What that last part in particular, the ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. What does Jesus mean by that? Uh,
1: for the ones that didn't wander off, the ones who belong to the shepherd that he was able to leave behind, uh, there's. Doesn't seem to be as much joy over them as there would be over the one that he went out and found. Um, but uh, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about those who are faithful or those who don't need repentance. Um, and I think sometimes when we read this parable, we want to think a lot more about the 99. Well, what should the 99 be doing? Did Jesus leave, uh, did the shepherd in the parable uh, leave them in a vulnerable place or did he put them in a cave? And we do an awful lot of speculating about uh, the 99. Um, And at a certain point, I think it's just helpful to say the 99 aren't the point of the parable. Um, The rejoicing in heaven over the one that uh, God found and that he brings into his kingdom through repentance and restores to his people is wonderful. Um, and the next day, if one of the quote-unquote righteous ones who had no need of repentance wandered off, and the shepherd went out and found it and returned it to the flock, then there would be rejoicing over that one too. And so there is joy over being in the people and the flock and the kingdom of God, and uh, when you're part of the 99 and when you're one who's been returned. But I think this focuses on the, the joy because the lost one was so close to being gone, not just lost for a little while, not just misplaced, but, but permanently missing, um, and absent forever dead even. That's terrifying. Of course, the joy that one has been saved, not just from being mislaid for a while, but of being dead, is a really big deal. And so there is certainly rejoicing, the one that could have died didn't. His life has been saved. And his life was saved by the shepherd. Um, so, and I know this is part keep of going. our text, uh, but thinking a little bit about the third parable in this series, you have that said when when the father is speaking to the older brother of the, the son who goes away and later comes to his senses after spending his portion of the inheritance and he comes back. And the father says to the surly older brother, your brother has died and now he is alive. There is this... this uh, intensity of a life and death situation for this shepherd and for this sheep. This is a life and death situation, and the shepherd's actions preserve and and find and continue to celebrate life. When death was a possibility, the celebration of life is a huge victory.
0: Yeah, I, I know that the, the parable— coming is not part of our text today, but you do have to really consider all three of them together at least in part, and the only reason we're not is because there's so much in that third parable that it's you just have to have a whole episode for that, but to see how it does bring this to a climax I think is very important, you know, so from from this first parable the the different, among the differences of the way that it brings it to a climax is making explicit, as you said, the matter of death to life, and then also the matter of sheep versus sons Right? I mean, you know, if, if you're going to care this much about sheep, how much more are you going to care about sons? There's there's that kind of escalation too. And then to move us into the next parable that we have for today, there's also an escalation there because you're talking, again, you go from say, 10 coins to two sons that's an escalation only two now and then also just the fact that you're talking about coins versus people so there is this this building this crescendo within this chapter that really does come to a, a climax and so you know we do want to keep these together if you're listening today and you're you're like, oh, I want I really want to find out more. Make sure you listen tomorrow to find out about this this third and final parable and how it really does bring these themes together and and climax them in, into Jesus' ultimate message to these Pharisees and scribes who are listening. So, Pastor L, let's talk about the the second parable we've got today. It's it's shorter. There are a few details in there though that are, are different. Maybe highlight some some more nuances that we didn't pick up or, or repeat some of the themes from the first parable. What's there in the I I can't remember what you told me we should call this one something apart not partying woman. What did you, would you say?
1: Maybe, maybe I said the rejoicing housewife or something like that.
0: There we go. Rejoicing housewife. Uh, That's it.
1: But so here there is this idea that there is a, um, a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one, but then she's going to light a lamp and she's going to go all over the house and she's going to break out the broom and she is going to work to find that coin. Um, but once again, so like you said before, Pastor Apple, there is a there's kind of an escalation or, a, uh, or a, an addition to the intensity. You go from 100 sheep to 10 coins. Um, it is also a little bit interesting to notice that in this parable. Uh, the coin was lost as opposed to the sheep running away. You can easily kind of blame the sheep in the sheep parable, right? Oh, those sheep, they just run. Um, but here you have a woman who lost a coin. Um, and, but that doesn't change anything. She's going to go get what is hers. And this idea that this coin belongs to her and she will keep it and preserve it is, is terribly important. And so she goes and she searches diligently and she finds her coin, uh, there have been times in my house where I've lost things that have been kind of important, but whenever I have to go looking for them, I'm really careful how I do it because I don't want my wife who lives in my house to know that I lost something. So, so I might wait until she's gone to work before I look for something. I remember uh, once I had a, had a mishap. I couldn't find my wedding ring. Um, I thought I had washed it down the drain. And one night uh, she came home as I was in the midst of an impromptu plumbing job. Um, I don't do plumbing jobs, impromptu or otherwise. <laughs> but she sees me with the monkey wrench and she says, what are you doing? Uh, and I said, you're not supposed to be home yet. And she said, no, I'm not. <laughs> but what are you doing? Well, uh, maybe I was looking for my uh, wedding ring in the in the in the in drain pipe. Well, how might have it gotten there? Don't ask me any questions. I don't want to talk about this. That's how uh, the absent-minded pastor deals with losing things. But in this parable, this woman calls everybody together and says, rejoice with me. It even makes me wonder, does Does she lay out a spread? Does she... Uh, get some food and drink together for all of these people who gather to celebrate this coin. Does she end up spending a coin because she found a coin? Does she even perhaps spend the coin that she found in order for this party to take place? Now, I I don't know for sure. And maybe that's going uh, quite a bit beyond the parable, but the, the reckless joy and the love that she has because what was lost is found. Uh, surpasses the value, even of the thing that was found. And so for the tax collectors and sinners of our day, and even for the righteous people who need to be found by God today, there is more joy in heaven that you're found than you're worth. Uh, If you were trying to prove yourself to God that you're worth something to him somehow, well, that's going to be kind of hard to prove. But Here we find God declares, you are worth it. Look at the joy that I have because you have been found. You could even say, look at what it costs God to redeem and reclaim us sinners. It takes God so loving the world that he sends his one and only son into the flesh in order to die so that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life that happens at some considerable cost. What kind of a God would sacrifice himself in death and then in resurrection, uh, showing his glory again, for, well, for people who run off, for the lost, for the tax collectors and the public sinners and the ones who, by, by the way they live their lives, seem to have no evidence of giving two hoots about God, but that's exactly what God has done showing the importance of his gospel among us.
0: The, the overwhelming joy comes through again and again in, in these two parables, and again we will reach a climax in the parable that we look at tomorrow with the, the two sons who are lost as well, this, you know, just the absolute necessity of joy. It, it has to happen. There's no, there's no question about it. It almost, you know, and again, to put it in the context of what's happening around Jesus at the moment, you've got the Pharisees questioning the joy that Jesus has in eating with these tax collectors and sinners. And by telling these parables, he's saying, look, you know, we, we have to rejoice. There's just no question about it. This has to happen. Because of the, the enormity of what has been accomplished, that a sinner, one who had been an enemy of God completely outside of his kingdom, someone who, who had belonged to the, the domain of the devil, that person has been brought into the kingdom of light and life. How can there be anything but joy? And the way that you know, these parables are told, and, and again, we don't want to go too far with the details, but to recognize some of the things that maybe make us scratch our heads and say, well, I'm, I'm not sure that I would have done that. It is all part of just recognizing that this is a part of of who God is in his finding of his lost people is that he has this joy and is willing to take upon himself shame and suffering all for the sake of, of me, a a sinner right? for such a worm as I, I can't remember which Lenten hymn sings that way, but for such a worm as I, that's what God is willing to do. And how can there be anything but joy? That That's one of the the huge themes of this parable, or both of these parables. Pastor, we've got about five minutes here. Other, other thoughts on these parables and, and the way that we take them and apply them as, as Christians still today?
1: I think that it's um, really important to remember this is all about God's action and his effort towards us. Uh, this is about how God applies his grace to us in his word and in his sacraments. Um, And God is always invested in the goodness, uh, in his goodness, as he looks for and restores sinners. Uh, God risks doing things that, uh, to a thinker today, might look silly. Um, Every once in a while, I'll hear a charge from somebody who's not a Christian uh, about how they are... uh, uh, About... uh, the death of Jesus as divine child abuse or something like that. To the server. Uh, but to be able to say, it looks terrible, doesn't it? That God would be willing to do such a thing, but he did that thing because he wanted good for me and to accomplish good for me. That's what it took. And so he didn't hold anything back. He didn't say, Oh, Some of those new atheists might think I look kind of silly doing this, so maybe I won't do it. Instead, no, he willingly and even joyfully offers himself to the cross so that there we would be saved. And he comes with this continual declaration, baptizing people into his kingdom and saying, you are mine. You have my name. Hmm. You live in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You have this new life. I I have found you. I have rescued you. And it's time to have a party because my kingdom is expanding. And we hear the same good news in the Lord's Supper. Take, eat. This is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood, shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, It looks, well, so often to our human imagination, it looks like a waste. Why would God die for that bozo? Or, sometimes, thinking of myself, this bozo? Well, God did that because of his great and immeasurable love for you. God doesn't waste his grace or his baptism, or his preaching, or his communion, or anything else on anybody. When God speaks, it is because of his great love for you, and he gathers his church together in heaven and on earth. He gathers his angels together, and they rejoice because God has done this great thing, It's not about somebody um, doing the right thing or making the right decision. It's about the work that God has done and the work that God has accomplished for his people. Um, And the restoration of a sinner then is always a good thing. And so uh, this also helps to shape how we think about uh, people coming into the church. When we look at somebody who's new in the church, we don't look at them kind of in a cynical way and say, when will they go back to their sinfulness? Oh, I wonder how long this one will stick around before something goes wrong. Uh, And sometimes in the church we talk that way, don't we? At least sometimes. Um, But these parables leave no room for cynicism. They leave no room for, well, how long is this going to last? They leave no room for curiosity. There is only room for the joy of God, who rejoices that a sinner has been restored to his kingdom, that what's his is still his. There was no losing. There was no dying. Instead, there is only celebration in the work of God, because God has done this great thing.
0: Pastor Peter Ill is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt Illinois, helping us today with Luke 15, verses 1 to 10. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 15 or any comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.